everyone. Welcome uh, to this episode of Chat with the Experts. I'm your host, Sean Young. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Classcraft, a platform for student motivation and behavior intervention. And in this podcast, we uh, do our best to, um, you know, basically get uh, interesting <laughs> guests and uh, who've been doing a lot of work in the education space, uh, both from a research perspective, but also, you know, boots on the ground. And um, the, the the goal of this is to distill learnings, uh, you know, research-based learnings from authors, from uh, researchers that aren't always, you know, available to educators. We know that there's a lot of research, a lot of best practices have been well-documented in education. Unfortunately, a lot of those are hidden behind, you know, paywalls for articles or lengthy reads. And, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to, you know, distill that into, um, you know, a conversation that you can listen to on your commute or while you're doing the dishes or, you know, while you're grading math problems. Um, so uh, my guest today, Dr. Nicole Holland-Sims, thank you so much for being there. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so Nicole, I'm just going to read your bio so everybody knows who uh, who you are, and then we'll get started. Okay. So um, Nicole Holland-Sims, <laughs> EDD is an educational consultant and strategist. She serves as a technical assistance coordinator for the Midwest PBIS network. Dr. Holland Sims is a former special assistant to the Secretary of Education at the Pennsylvania Department of Ed. And she has previously served as an educational consultant for the Pennsylvania Training and Technical Assistant Network. Patan in Harrisburg, where she was the co-statewide lead for the Learning Environment and Engagement Initiative. Dr. Holland Sims is a Pennsylvania certified school psychologist and has conducted research around caregivers of children of incarcerated parents and their motivation to engage in family school partnerships. Dr. Holland Sims has been awarded as a moral and courageous leader for education by Cabrini University in 2021 the 2021 American Psychology Association Anti-Racism School Psychology Emerging Professional Award, that's a mouthful, and was named the 2021 Pennsylvania School Psychologist of the Year, big year 2021. Uh, And in 2022, Dr. Holland Sims served as the lead author of the book titled Creating Equitable Practices in PBIS, super interesting topic. And Dr. Holland Sims has also recently launched her own business, Holland Sims Consultation. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Really a pleasure. And we'll talk about all this work in just a sec. Uh, But before we get going, you know, here's my icebreaker. Uh, What is your hobby? (laughs) It's funny, when I think of that question, I'm like, really, what is my hobby? I don't Uh... know, right? I can say this. I have a five-year-old son and okay, so having no, a no time for hobbies. <laughs> there you yeah. Go. <laughs> so he creates the hobbies for me. Yeah. Um, but I can remember this is going to sound really kind of nerdy. So just geek out with me for a you're, minute. You've got the right uh, you know, person you're talking to here. <laughs> okay. Huge self-confessed nerd. <laughs> so my husband, when we first met, he wanted me to always go to the movies with him to watch Marvel movies. And mm-hmm. I always said, no, 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 I'm not interested. My son comes along, COVID happens, we're quarantined, and Disney Plus becomes life. Part of your house. And so my son actually makes me sit down and watch, in chronological timeline order, 
the Marvel movies. And so now that's like something we are excited about. We look forward to the new movies that came out. And so Ant-Man is out right now. Mm -hmm. Did you see it? Not yet. I mean, either. (laughs) So like that's, that's become, I guess, a hobby. Um, Something that I look forward to. Prior to 2020, I'd never watched a Marvel movie, except like the very early ones, like Iron Man 1 or whatever. And same thing. I'm like, well, I better catch up on these now. And I watched them all in chronological order. Uh, Probably this must have been like 2021. And individually, they're not equally good. But as a whole... Like, oh, they're amazing. Door number two, I'm looking at you. Horrible. Um, but but <laughs> but as a whole, like the tapestry is just awesome. And so you know, I I just yesterday finished watching um Wakanda Forever, uh, yes. which is fantastic. Really it was fantastic. Good. Yeah. So uh, I will say that's, Thor that's Ragnarok. Funny. We've got the same story. <laughs> Thor Ragnarok, <laughs> personal huge favorite. Love it. Yeah. Redemption for Thor too, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, but Korg, Korg is my favorite. You know, he's like <laughs> that rock guy. My favorite <laughs> character in the entire MCU is that guy. He's so funny uh, <laughs> to me, yes, anyways. No, um, he's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you watch the uh, Chris G- Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special? It was so amazing. Good. It was so it was good. <laughs> amazing. My child at five years old now says, That's Kevin Bacon. Whenever nice. he sees because we watch the holiday special. Pr- proper, you know, culture <laughs> transmission. There you go. As a parent. That's so funny. Yes, yes it's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know a lot of people who have that exact same journey as me. So another point we have in common. That's funny. Pretty cool. Yeah. I'm not alone. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, okay. So, so tell me about your work. Um, You know, you've been working in, you know, behavior and PBIS and you just wrote this book, mm-hmm. um, won all these awards for it. So, you know, why did you get into this? Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, I asked myself that a lot sometimes. Why did I decide (laughs) this was the trajectory? Um, But what I can honestly say is as a school psychologist by training, a lot of the work that we've been trained to do is all around testing and placement and determining if a student is eligible for special education supports. Right. But my training as a school psychologist, I learned more than that. I learned about consultation. I learned about intervention and supports. And so when I learned about multi-tiered systems of support, at the time we called it response to intervention, I was like, this sounds a little interesting. A lot different than just doing an IQ test and seeing how a student performed, but actually impacting systems and how the overall structure of the building functioned. Mm -hmm. And that got me interested in school climate and what is this thing called PBIS and how do you do it? And so that was the beginning of the journey. And then when I was working in Harrisburg School District as a school psychologist with a very high caseload, I got the opportunity to serve as an internal coach for the Mm -hmm. building that I served. And that allowed me to break out of that box of testing and actually influence a leadership team and have people that normally just saw me as the testing lady actually seek out my advice and my Mm -hmm. input 
on what we could be doing across the building. And so that was really the impetus for me saying, I like this type of work and I want to see how far I can go with it. Mm-hmm. Couple that with then seeing that when I got to the state level, PBIS wasn't working for every student. And I didn't quite get that because in my building, it seemed to be working, but we weren't looking at all of the data that I think we could have been looking at. Mm -hmm. And so I said, what does that mean? And someone explained to me that that's what equity is. When every student is getting what they need to be successful and the outcomes are showing that, that means equity is taking place. And so I wanted to know more. And why is that happening? I have a good colleague, Dr. Amber Sessoms, who talks about being a perpetual toddler and always saying, why, 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 why? (laughs) And so when you keep asking those questions, you get to root causes, and that allows you to think about how to be better in what you do. So Mm -hmm. that's a very brief nutshell of how I got to be engaged and involved in this work and seeing the outcomes that hopefully are making an impact nationally. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because you started in a school, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and now you're working, you know, across, you know, states, Um, you know, such a change in perspective. Um, So and we'll get to the macro level. But if you're looking at it from a micro level, you know, what what happened in that, you know, what happened in that school district to, you know, when we were preparing for this call, you talked a bit about, um, you know, some of the early realizations you made there mm-hmm. of, you know, kind of directed, you know, some of your work today. So, so tell us a bit about that experience and just kind of, you know, what those realizations were. Yeah. So in Harrisburg School District, we're considered a small urban district. So compared to a Philadelphia or a Pittsburgh, not at the same scale, but still very similar challenges in the the types of of students that are coming to our buildings, the types of environments that surround our buildings. And so at the particular building I was at was a middle school, uh, fifth through eighth grade and shout out to all my middle school educators. Um, It's definitely something that you have a heart for that you love to do. And so when I was, (laughs) yeah, middle school rocks. Um, It's a challenge, but it's a good one. But I will say, as middle school educators, we're a tough crowd. Mm-hmm. And so when we were trying to bring about this, this new thing called PBIS at the time, we had a lot of pushback, a lot of staff who were like, now what? You know, here comes one more thing that we now have to think about. And kids should know how to behave by the time they get to middle school. Like that was the mantra that we were hearing. And so when I was doing trainings, introducing this framework, I had a few staff members who were very resistant, one of which turned her back to me and essentially verbalized, here we go again. And she physically turned her back to you. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it was because of frustration. You know, we're in the trenches and now here you come to tell us what we're doing has been wrong and we should change it. And so I had to undo some of that history that unfortunately I could relate to as hurtful as it was to have that experience, it spoke to me that we had Mm -hmm. to approach this a little differently. And so that really drove me to think different because when we normally do this work, it's very student driven, you know, make sure the students are buying into whatever acknowledgement systems are in place. 
But you need teacher buy-in first, right? (laughs) That's what it was for us. And it made the biggest difference because we approached it from how do we get the staff on board the most? Mm -hmm. And we thought about the kids secondary because Mm -hmm. we had swag, we had a grant. And so we had shirts and pencils and all that. We had the staff do that piece first, wear the shirts, model that this is important, that there's a sense Mm -hmm. of pride Mm -hmm. in being a part of this community. And that really helped turn the tide. It -hmm. took a lot of time, which we know systems change will take time. Um, But we started to nudge those staff members that were uncertain to jump on our side. And then the one that turned her back on me two years later came and put her arm around me and said, I didn't believe in that stuff, but you actually made a difference here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, okay, so it's possible. So that was the experience that really let me know that it could be done in other places, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you have to know the context that you're operating in to make it happen. But still it starts with shifting the teacher body, uh, you know, the staff, you know, we talk a lot about school culture yeah, and, you know, and you're right. A lot of people are thinking about, you know, students and getting them to care and et cetera. But like, the truth is if the teachers don't buy it into to that story, you know, there's a story, like a culture is a story, story. right? So if they don't buy that story mm-hmm. then you know, how are they going to be good storytellers for the students? Wow. That's powerful. That's true. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm just repeating what you said in other words. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. The storytellers, yeah. they have mm-hmm. to communicate that it's important too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, we'll talk about, you know, the intervening work, but but you just wrote a book, uh, <laughs> Creating Equitable Practices in PBIS. I really care about this topic. Um, you know, I think that there's just specifically in behavior intervention, we know that that's one of the places where there's the most disproportionality in terms of, you know, opportunity, fairness, equity um, across the whole, the entire school system. And this is true in every state. Um, you know, we, so, so and, 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 you know, as, as somebody who runs a behavior platform approach, I, I really believe we can have a huge impact at scale by A, having these conversations and B, putting in place systems to, you know, both empower and hold educators accountable. And, um, so anyways, I, I really care about this, but obviously you do too. You wrote a book. So, so <laughs> what is it? What, why did you write this book? And, you know, what, what, what would we learn if we read it? Yeah. So I wrote the book because I found that when I was training teams across at this point in Pennsylvania, they knew how to do the key cornerstones of PBIS. Like they had training materials that mm-hmm. were specific around that. What was missing was how to embed equity into those processes. Often what I found is we would train on, let's say tier one. So you build an acknowledgement system, you have a data system, you think about practices at the classroom level, the expectations, three to five expectations, people could do that. Where they missed the mark or didn't have the roadmap was how do we engage students in this process and get authentic student voice? How do we engage families in this process and get authentic family and community voice into the things that we're developing 
whether it was the expectations or the matrices that you would see around buildings, that was missing. In addition, that whole data understanding or that data story of who's receiving outcomes that are positive and who's receiving outcomes with the same level of support that are not so positive. And what could we be doing differently to root cause analyze? Why? Mm -hmm. And so the book really was an an outgrowth of seeing those outcomes happen across buildings and teams and teams actually saying to us, we want to embed equity, but we don't know where to even start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'll never forget it. I was sitting in my car probably early 2021. You know, you have COVID brains, so you you have a lot of time on your hands. (laughs) And so I said, I should write a book. Because then it's a one-stop shop and people can have something easy to pull and say, how do I set the foundation? How do I begin the journey? How do I become data rich and information rich? Because often in schools, we have a ton of data, but we're information poor. We don't know what to do with all of it or how to put it in place. Mm -hmm. And then how do we address pushback or that resistance that just comes with this type of work? Systems change one followed by now having people unpack things like bias mm-hmm. that's heavy and yeah, so a lot of i mean there's a lot of shame attached to to that for yeah for the white majority of educators mm-hmm. saying why well, i have these biases am i you know am i a bad person you know right and to take it up a notch even me as a black woman i have biases too And thinking about how those biases have impacted my own decision making, I think that's that's such a heavy lift for people and they don't know where to start. So Mm -hmm. immediately people get defensive. Like you said, there's shame. Shame shame shuts people down immediately. 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 Mm -hmm. So giving strategies, and that's what I wanted the book to do. What does a training plan look like? Mm -hmm. So that you're not having those, which I I can't stand these things, but they happen all the time where you bring the whole staff together and someone like me comes and says, bias is this and you shouldn't do that. And then everyone walks away deflated. Why did we have to sit through that? They don't buy into it. I wanted intentionality behind what it is we do. So start with the core team, train in that regard, train them on how to address disproportionate data. And then go to your grade level teams and train them and build a cascade of training so that people aren't just getting a one shot deal or spray and pray, Mm -hmm. but actual coaching along the way. So that was the premise of the book. And I engage with co-authors who I think bring such a perspective that's needed. One who has worked in a lot of rural and suburban settings, Mm -hmm. another who is a professor and does the program evaluation of PBIS in our state. Who could give what are their names just for, for people listening? Their names? Oh, yes. So Dr. Erica Caruder okay. and Dr. Tim Rungi. Yeah. Hello Those to both two. of you. Yep. They're amazing. They are amazing. And I'm so grateful that they decided mm-hmm. to join me on this book journey. But so, so, so is, is the book. So a couple of things. If you're listening mm-hmm. in, PBIS is positive behavior interventions and support. Sometimes people just say PBS, positive behavior supports. And we're talking yeah. about a an educational practice where 
you um, instead of focusing on trying to control students and punish them when they don't, you know, respond to your control, instead teaching them the behaviors that will lead to them being successful and being, you know, good members of the school community. And so, um, you know, that what we is often called expectations, you know, Nicole said mm-hmm. that a bit earlier, you know, what are the expectations? She also mentioned matrices. So this is a common document that is created in this practice where you will have, you know, different, a, a line for each, you know, type of rubric. So, you know, we'll, some, some places will put them as skills or competencies, but they're basically, you know, being respectful, for example, as a line. And then uh, different contexts on the vertical side where you're talking about, you know, what does being respectful in the classroom look like versus in the hallway versus et cetera. So, just, just to put some lingo here. Um, and so a lot of schools, when they start, they want to shift away from, okay, we've got all this problem where we're punishing kids. And of course that creates resentment. It creates this very negative culture and it doesn't create long lasting behavior change. This is a well-documented research practice where, you know, let's focus on the positive and let's give kids feedback so that they, they can learn, you know, what they're supposed to do and we can you know, grow them. There's a whole other level to this about like tiered approaches and, you know, yes. how to use the data. But in a nutshell, that's, you know, the tier one part of mm-hmm. it, what schools are doing for most students. So a lot of schools, when they're doing PBIS, they are doing that. And then, you know, to to like reinforce the positive, they give, they have this token system, which is kind of a hallmark for these systems <laughs> where they'll like pay money for tickets for positive behavior. I have a lot of opinions about that, but mm-hmm. um basically looking for ways to motivate kids um, to to respond to these behaviors. So that's like probably, you know, a lot, a lot of schools have done that and your book is helping them level up from there, right? It's not yes. like, how do I get started with PBIS? That's not for me. This book is for, I already have PBIS and I want to level it up because, you know, because diversity, equity, inclusion, ultimately belonging, that's what we're trying to create in these schools um is not being served by just the basic what yes. i just described right you got it you okay got so it. so the book mm-hmm. is for people already doing it but they need to level up so what what do they do to level up how do they do that what yeah, does the book say so, <laughs> <laughs> so it says a few things yeah. um so one of the things that i think i want to make very very clear is that the importance of voice has to be at the crux of that level up Okay. So so often the voice is people like you and I, the educators that are very versed in education mm-hmm, ease mm-hmm. and know how to do this on a consistent basis. Sometimes when we're building these infrastructures, and that's the key thing about PBIS too, is that it's a framework. So we can embed practices that make the most sense in our context around the premise of this framework. Where we miss the mark sometimes is when we think we know what's best and we haven't listened to people like our students, like our families, Mm -hmm. like our communities, we wonder why these things fail. Or we wonder why there's not buy-in. And it's because we haven't done, which we call out in the book, radical inclusion, which is the ability to listen without having a response prepared, the ability to listen without knowing whether or not we agree with what they're saying or not, Mm -hmm. but actually taking it in and applying what we've learned from that listening and being responsive to it. 
Got it. So that's a key level up that I think can make the difference between status quo PBIS mm-hmm. and equitable PBIS, because now I'm meeting the definition of equity, which one of the components is co-construction. I see. So that co-construction comes from those voices that traditionally have not been included in a lot of that decision making. So what follows from that? Like, what are some change? Like, let's say you do the radical inclusion, you know, you do that. What does PBIS before and after look like? What's the difference? Yeah. So an example would be, let's say, to your point about a token economy or the things that people can receive acknowledgments for. The goal of that is to build community in the school, mm-hmm. too, but also to develop some intrinsic motivation. So doing that for a time, but then hopefully building in that intrinsic part. Those acknowledgement systems might be something And my colleague co-author, Dr. Karuder, used this recently. She said in a district they wanted to do a Halloween party for some middle school students as an acknowledgement. And when they talked to the students, they said, that's stupid. We don't want to do that. We want to actually go outside and walk around because we don't get the chance to actually do that. If that team hadn't listened to what the students said, they would have put the Halloween party on the dock mm-hmm. and wondered why <laughs> nobody wanted it. Nobody worked for it. Nobody cared about it. But mm-hmm. if they radically included the voices, then they were responsive to what needed to be done and actually created that collective commitment instead of Mm buy-in from the student body to actively participate and want to be a part of the process. So the before and after is before we do what we think we want and what we think will work, after would be I've actively connected, communicated, and supported Mm -hmm. what I heard and have done action as a result of it. And then keep doing that, right? It's not like, Actually oh, from it. now on, we're doing kids want to go outside instead of right. Halloween. Maybe, you know, maybe two years from now, those kids, they want the Halloween party. You, you, got <laughs> you know it. what I mean, right? It's you got to keep it going. Feedback. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's getting that to be business as usual. Right. Instead of right. a one-off. It, it becomes right. ingrained in what we do. So much of, of you know, the what I'm hearing about... Uh, you know, uh, truly being, you know, diverse, equitable, include inclusive is about just small things you do every day, right? Um, yeah. As opposed to this big, yeah, we're going to write it on the walls, like, you know, <laughs> marketing campaign about it. It's actually right. like, why don't you just talk to these people and make a point of talking to them? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Simple, but hard, actually, right? It's true. It is simple, but hard. And I think to a lot of credit to people that have tried it and maybe haven't gotten the results they wanted. Mm -hmm. Like maybe Mm -hmm. they put out an all call and students didn't respond or they put out an all call and families didn't show. And that can be so soul wrenching that you just say, yeah, yeah. Well, I tried it last time. Nobody came. Screw it. You know? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's being persistent and in that persistence, finding the small wins, which I appreciate Mm -hmm. you mentioning. It's, you can't bite off the whole elephant. So take no. chunks at a time and do what you can to see the outcomes eventually mm-hmm, happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So one is, is, you know, radical inclusion, mm-hmm. listen your butt off and, you know, take action. Yes. What are the other things that, that are in this book that, that would help? Yeah. So the other portions I really focus on our, and our co-authors do too, on the importance of data collection, 
data analysis and data evaluation. So knowing that data story is critical. Only having one part of the story, which is typically the aggregate, so all the data in one, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. only tells a portion of the story. If we can disaggregate that data by subgroup or whatever group you're looking at, because contextually, I think it's important to note, when we talk about being equitable, it doesn't just live in districts or schools where you have a significantly racially diverse school. Right. Equitable PBIS, you can have a homogenous school by race, and still have cultures that exist, whether that's religious, mm-hmm. gender, et cetera, disability, yep. the list. Yeah, not to mention students on IDA plans, right? Exactly, yep. exactly. So that data disaggregation is going to tell you about those different groups and whether or not when comparing those groups to the majority of students, mm-hmm. whether or not there's a discrepancy or yep. the likelihood of them receiving an outcome at a higher rate than their other counterparts. That's so important because then we can figure out what possibly could be at play there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's when it gets dicey because it may be because let's say in your classroom, disrespect looks one way. Mm -hmm. In my classroom, disrespect looks totally different. And so from class to class, the student doesn't have consistency. Yep. And so I might be writing them up for something you wouldn't write them up for. Mm -hmm. And based Mm -hmm. on my trigger, which might be an eye roll, subjectivity is so much at play. And that's where implicit bias is also at play. Absolutely. So Dr. Kent McIntosh from the University of Oregon, he talks about the three Ds, defiance, disrespect, and disruption being highly subjective, but yet are typically the behaviors we see the most with disproportionate outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Because that bias is at play. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So we talk about all of that in the book too. Super interesting. It, you know, maybe one thing I would add to that, and maybe you can give me your thoughts on this, is you know one of the things that we've noticed is you know with Classcraft we're generating you know data about positive interventions. Mm-hmm. And very often, even in schools that have PBIS, which is, this is mind blowing to me, but really the only data they have is like write-ups, referrals, suspensions, right? And, so and that's a huge problem in the data story, in my opinion, because Agreed. you're really only looking at a specific part of the students when they're at their absolute worst. They're not, you know, they're not being suspended every day. So... Right then what's going on with those kids the rest of the time mm-hmm. um and so like there, there's a whole black box of what's going on when we're not having you know s- such a big problem that it escalates to the office you know and i think that capturing behavior data that's positive is a huge you know part of of, of how to solve this problem as well um i don't know if, would you agree with that I would definitely agree. And I think sometimes we all, and I'll I'll throw myself in this, we get so fixated on the negative Mm -hmm. and fixated on the problem admiration that we neglect that side of the coin, which I think is really important. And I can speak candidly from my experience. We don't look at what are the positive outcomes that we're seeing or what are the positive things that students are doing. In another uh, project that I'm supporting through my work with Midwest, we're trying to look at even intervention access mm-hmm. and how that can be disproportionate in a lot yep. of ways so that students who are being written up for 
discipline actually needs some mental health intervention. Mm -hmm. They're not getting it. Why? You know, these are these perpetual toddler questions. Why? (laughs) What's at the root? Mm -hmm. I love when you said the black box. Tell me what's going on there. What happened so that we can do better? So I definitely agree. I think we're missing the mark on some of those things for sure. Yeah. And it's it's uh, and it's fascinating because like often, you know, kids that are getting suspended, they actually do have positive behaviors. Yes. And and then there's also this bias we have as educators of like, well, I know I had you suspended. I'm keeping an eye on you from now on. You know, we know the research says, you know, the the most, the highest indicator of future suspension or referral is previous suspension or referral, right? Got it. So so super interesting from from the data side. Um, And so, so, you know, I think that like, you, you talked here about data and how we need to look at it. What are some decisions you could make following that data? Because I think we, you know, it's pretty clear that like, okay, if you look at the data and you segment it, mm-hmm. you could identify discrepancies mm-hmm. and those are places you could dig, right? Like, sure. oh, this seems off. Let me see what's going on and let's get the qualitative, you know, input from the teachers or whatever. But like, what do you do? Let's say you notice a discrepancy. Let's say I'm a school leader. I'm looking at my data. I'm like, oh my God, my, you know, my black boys are being suspended three to one. Yep. Now what do I do? <laughs> now what do I do? And it's, yep. it, that is what we hear all the time, which was yeah. what I was saying about why I wrote the book, because those are the types of questions I was mm-hmm. getting to. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that I think is important to do is really drill down in that data. So yeah, that risk ratio information, three times more likely than their peers to be receiving fill in the blank out-of-school suspension, discipline referral, et cetera. Why? Again, Mm -hmm. where is that happening the most? So what we would say in the work of database decision-making is we need to create what's called a precise problem statement. So it's not enough for me to just say, you know, the cafeteria is out of control. That's not enough for me to actually pinpoint action. So I need to be precise. Who, what, when, where, and why? So the why is the function. And in behavior world, that's what we always want to go to. Are are students trying to escape something or obtain something? Mm -hmm. And so a precise problem statement based on what you just described as an example of my Black boys are about three times more likely to receive fill in the blank. I want to drill down in that information to know, is that the cafeteria at what time, on what day of the week, with Mm -hmm. what staff members? And are they looking for peer attention? Or are they trying to escape something? Does that appear to be the the metadata that's going to help you? Yeah. So if I'm doing that type of drill down process, then I can start pulling the onion back even further Mm -hmm. and narrowing the scope of where to focus. So again, if black boys in the cafeteria at 12 noon are being written up for disrespect, Who's doing the Mm write-ups and what does the disrespect look like and sound like? And is this a teachable moment, not only for the students, but the staff members too, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on are we clear on what disrespect looks like at XY school? Mm -hmm. Or flip it, what does respect look like at XY school? And is our definition consistent? That really then speaks to whether or not bias has played a role 
in those write-ups. Because again, if I don't like how you're talking to me, if you roll your eyes, if you do certain things and I'm the person on duty, I'm writing you up consistently, but I'm yeah. not writing up another child who does almost the identical behavior. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said there. And this isn't a gotcha on teachers or staff members. It's looking system wide and saying, what might be at the root of why we're seeing some of these mm-hmm. outcomes mm-hmm. and not saying you all are biased or what have you, but what can we do to create what's called a neutralizing routine? Mm-hmm. So when someone rolls their eyes, instead of me immediately going to a referral, can I take a deep breath or count to 10? Yeah. What can be that routine for me? And we can do that across a whole staff mm-hmm. and training. Well, and it's interesting because I think that, um, you know, there's a, what you said, you know, this isn't a gotcha. I think, you know, when mm-hmm. you're trying to do this level of, you know, intervention, if you're a school leader with your staff, framing that the right way is going to make or break it, Right. Absolutely. Um, and we go back to this shame thing, like, gotcha, you're always writing up at the cafeteria. It's you, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, so how do you, you have to point that out. What I find sometimes um, a lot of educators, just when they see the data, it's pretty convincing. <laughs> they don't realize it, right? You don't, you don't realize you're just going through your day and, you know, this, this has happened. And, you know, you're intervening on behavior all the like teachers all day, all the time, whether positive or negative are intervening on behavior. Yes. Having the data to just point out, you know, things creates a light bulb. Like sometimes you don't maybe don't even need to tell the story. Just like, hey, look at this data. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. And Mm -hmm. like sometimes the data can speak for itself, too. Maybe that's a strategy. Um. I'm thinking out loud, but we've seen that where the data, you know, teachers are able to read a graph, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you sure know, thing. and here's some data. What do you think? Um, you know, so that's interesting and important, I think, to, you know, what you're outlining here. Also, at the same time, I feel like we're, there's a, there's a, you know, from an anti-racist perspective, there's a bit of a a line here where it's like, well, how much wrapping do we need to put around this? If there's an actual bias problem. Call it out. Should mm-hmm. we just call it out? You know, I don't know. I, I feel like we're also just kind of, you know, you have to, there's such a, I, I put myself in the, in the shoes of a principal having to deal with this. And I would, I would struggle with where's that line, you know? Sure. Sure. And it is a struggle and it, it really speaks to knowing, knowing your people. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a school leader, you know, your people and maybe that, maybe that message doesn't come from you. Mm. Maybe that message comes from other teacher leaders. Maybe that message comes from students mm. who express how they feel being a student at your building. That has been powerful in other mm. districts I've supported. That's interesting. And not even about PBIS, but yeah. alum have come back to high schools and said, when I was a student here, I didn't feel that I belonged because mm. fill in the blank. And teachers have sat there, staff members, I won't just put it on teachers because we all own this. 
have had to sit there and take that in. Mm. And so sometimes the leader is just the conduit yeah, for to other create voices. a space for That's that communication right. to happen. Right. So well, I find it such an interesting strategy because yeah, if you get it from the actual students, there's all these emotions, right? But it's like, I was here three years ago. Like we don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, we're, we're not even, you know, you're not even intervening with me anymore. And here's my story. I think that's so, that's so such a smart strategy. Yeah. It, it has worked. It's mm. hard to hear sometimes, yeah. but it has a lasting impact rather than a consultant like me coming and saying it. Yeah. I can say it till I'm blue in the face this and it won't be received know. in the same that's way. Right. That's mm-hmm. right. Huh. I love that. I really love that idea. Well, and it goes all the way back to giving voice, right? Like, you know, I just think alumni is such a smart move (laughs) because it's such a neutral, it's, you have an emotional attachment because they're your alumni and you worked with them as a, as a staff member, but they're in a neutral ground now and they're gone, you know, they're Um, gone and it protects the current students who may feel like, yeah, oh that's my right. goodness, I'm going to be retaliated against, which may not be a reality, but yep. for some, they may really perceive yeah, yeah. that. Totally. And so it's protection. Yeah. Yeah. That's super, super interesting. When we were talking, I'm changing subject here, shifting gears. Okay. So when we, when we were talking before, this has been super fascinating to me. Thank you. Um, you know, you, you were talking about a, a, you, a term that I'd never heard before, deficit mindset. And yes. um, so, so what is that? And, and, and how does it, you know, inform the way that you're looking at this? Yeah. So I have to give credit. Um, there's a book called Hacking Deficit Thinking by two nice. school psychologists. Oh, there um, you go. <laughs> your <yeah>. people. <laughs> My people. So Dr. Byron McClure and Dr. Kelsey Reed just released that book not too long ago, but they wrote the book because in school psychology, like I was saying on the onset, we do a lot of assessment. And in doing that assessment, oftentimes we do like teacher input or we may get parent input or what have you. And in that input, typically it tends to lean negative. They can't do this. They struggle with this. Mm -hmm. And that's deficit mindset in a very surface example. Um, Where it can get deeper is if you're sitting at a data team table And let's say we start talking about the data we were just kind of talking through. Mm -hmm. And someone says, well, you know, those kids live on that side of town. So you can't really expect that much from them Mm -hmm. or their dad's in jail. So, yeah, it's no surprise. You know, that's a deficit. I'm sure you hear stuff like that all the time. Oh, my God. All the time. Of course. Yeah. So that's the, the framing that. Dr. How do you replace? How do you replace? Yes, students, kid is in jail. Like, what would you say instead? Well, the focus wouldn't be on that. I think I when we think about those types of conversations, uh, Nancy Love wrote a book about collaborative inquiry, and she talks about downward spiral conversations and upward spiral conversations. Mm. Downward spiral conversations are just what I pointed out. Yep, yep. You're not going to get anywhere by stating where they come from or problems and whatever. Yeah. We can't control it. Mm -hmm. Nothing we can do about that. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. do we have within our locus of control? And that's the upward Mm -hmm. spiral conversation. So Mm -hmm. to your question, someone says, well, their dad's in jail. So what could you really expect? My response would be, 
We do know that his father is incarcerated. However, that doesn't really lend itself to what we can do as a school to support mm -hmm. that young person. Mm -hmm. And we start unpacking what we can do. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to do because again, when we're kind of overwhelmed of situations, of course. Yeah. When we're overwhelmed, we resort to what we know, which is to talk about problems mm -hmm. <laughs> and do the problem mm -hmm. admiration dance. Mm -hmm. It's just easier. What does that dance look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it does feel like you're just dancing. And, I, and yeah. that's how I felt when I was sitting at those tables. How do I dance with you to acknowledge mm -hmm. that you have a valid concern and a valid standpoint, but yet bring you back around, circle you back around, and let's talk about what we can do within our own control. That's so powerful. Well, and in, in a lot of ways, it's, you know, focusing back on the positive again, right? It's yeah. like it's at the core of this whole idea of, exactly. you know, what, what are the strategies that we can put in place for this kid? What tools can we give them? What, you know, what, what does success look like for this child? Right. And how do we move towards that? And. Um, you know, I, I think that the, you know, one thing we talked about as well is, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of coaching with teens. Mm -hmm. You've been, you know, that's kind of how you started, um, yeah. you know, back at Harrisburg. And that's a lot of, you know, what you're doing now. And, and, and I imagine as well with your, your consulting business. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways, the book is, is a distillation of, you know, coaching conversations you've had. Yeah. What, what is, do you need to have a coach for PBIS to succeed? Like, can can schools do it on their own? Like what, what, what role does that play in being able to do this? Because we've seen PBIS really not work in some mm -hmm. places as well. Like, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it fails. Yes. And, yes. you know, and then the question is, you know, and then it's like, darn, you got to wait 10 more years before you can try again. Right. We're not going to do that. We tried it. It didn't work. I guess it's yeah, what you were talking about. So, yeah, so that, talk, talk to me about real. the coaching and, 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 and how important that is from your perspective. It's super important. Now, okay. do you need someone like me from a consulting firm? No, you don't. And I don't want to talk myself out of any jobs. However, <laughs> That is I the think reality. you've been doing a great job talking yourself up for future jobs here today with your expertise, but I'll just uh, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but that's the goal. And and my again, my co-author, Dr. Rungi, it's just so interesting. We've had an opportunity to talk recently, and he said, our job as consultants and coaches is to eventually work yourself out of a job. And right. that is to create enough capacity in the people we're serving that they mm -hmm. can take this and run and should. Yep. They own it. It's their life. It's their school. It's, you know, so that is the goal. But coaching is critical no matter the initiative or the innovation mm. because you need someone who can be a guide on the side to just kind of validate you're on the right track or to yeah. course correct you mm -hmm. along the way. And who doesn't necessarily have stake in the game, you know? at least not to the level of being yeah. so involved that they make it about them right mm -hmm. or get super emotionally attached to the thing there you go there you yeah. go and so internal coaches which is how i was in harrisburg i was a harrisburg school district employee mm -hmm. and i was the internal coach for my building and then we had what were called intermediate units so these were regional yeah. training and ta entities in our state mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
who supported us as internal coaches. So it was like a cascade of support that went from state level department all the way to regional supports, all the way to local supports. Yep. That's a level of coaching that has sustainability so mm-hmm. that if there's turnover, like when I left Harrisburg, yep. I was nervous because capacity wasn't really built. It was built mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. But then the person who came in after me had to almost start all over, which yeah. is sadly what happens. Yeah. So yeah. you need those external coaches too to sort of know the history so that whoever takes on that role has someone that knows how to progress in a way that it makes sense for the team that's already in place. Hmm. Coaching's critical. Okay. We're coming on time, but one last okay. thing I want to hear about elephant sure. in the room pandemic, you know, there's all these headlines about post pandemic, you know, student behavior and yeah. you know how terrible it is. Um, what are your thoughts on where we're at today? You know, we're 2023. We've been back to school for a bit. Yeah. What's going on from where you're sitting? A lot's going on. (laughs) Um, There's so much that I think has always been there. Mm. And yet I think it's finally come to the surface. I agree with that so much. Yeah. And I'm afraid that I don't want to say it's too late because I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm ever optimistic. Upward spiral, right? (laughs) Yes, I got to do the upward spiral. (laughs) But I do think this is an opportunity for us to be way more intentional about how we look at things like mental health, how we look Mm -hmm. at things like equity and not put them at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. Because I find that people, and I've done trainings where people have said to me, well, we're focused on trauma and mental health, so we don't need to talk about equity. Actually... All of that fits under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. So how do we build those connections for people explicitly that when they're doing that type of work, they're creating equitable practices that are supporting all students. That's the piece that I would want people to walk away with when they think about being in, I call it post 2020 space. The post-2020 space, we have to be explicit in integration instead of this silo approach, which education has fell victim to for Mm -hmm. centuries now. How do we start making those explicit connections? Because our children don't come to us in an academic piece of behavior piece. (laughs) They come to us whole. Mm -hmm. So how do we address it from a whole child perspective? Mm. Wise words. Thank you so much. Uh, This was Dr. Nicole Holland-Sims. I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for taking the time here with us. Uh, Just a reminder, the book, Creating Equitable Practices in PBIS, um, available, I'm sure, anywhere you can buy books. Um, And uh, thank you again for doing this work. I think it's important work. And I think there's not enough people um, focusing on it. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your work as well. 